Hey, it's Nelly. And it's Juno. And you're listening to Two Addies and Coffee, please. Where we share unfiltered life experiences as young, badass Asian American women with ADHD. Welcome to another episode of Two Addies and a Coffee, Please. This week, we're super excited to be collaborating with the Asian Mental Health Project, an initiative that started in 2019 that builds community events and multimedia resources to make mental health more accessible, particularly for pan-Asian communities. And joining us for today's episode is Carrie Zhang, founder of the Asian Mental Health Project. So Carrie, very happy to have you here. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about you and what motivated you to start this initiative? Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, this is super cool. Um, I've never used this format of podcast before, so it's super awesome. But yeah, I wanted to create something that I, I wish I had, I think. I tried to Google for resources like two years ago, and I couldn't find anything. I was like, well, crap. Like, I don't know what to do now. And my background is in public relations communication. So I was like, okay, if I am well-versed in like synthesizing information and making things palatable, presentable, and easy to read, maybe I can team up with, you know, mental health professionals and sort of do this project that does exactly that. So that's how Asian Mental Health Project was born. And it's still going strong, which is really cool. Just like going onto your page and seeing how digestible the information is, especially curated for the Asian American community, is amazing because there aren't any resources that are geared towards Asian Americans. And I think I found this like a huge problem when I was trying to look for therapists or like psychiatrists who are familiar with like the Asian American narrative and you don't feel like you have to explain yourself. And there are also like very few mental health professionals who are Asian and can relate to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel that the sort of idea of therapy in itself is super like westernized. And if you go on psychology today, like everyone's white. So it's, it's really hard to find someone to relate to. And for me, in my own journey of trying to find a therapist, I think now I would love for her to be a woman of color, but if she is an Asian woman, that'd be fantastic. So my therapist now is a South Asian woman. She's awesome. And yeah, like, as you were saying, like, it's just so nice to not have to explain every cultural caveat there is. It's so important to have not just baseline cultural competence, but like embracing Asian cultures as they are and then working with that. Um, I found through my research people who had therapists who were not like culturally affirming, they would, you know, attribute everything to like, oh, Asian parents are all like abusive and awful. So that must be like, or like, oh, you must have felt that stigma because of academic pressures, right? Like they would sort of assign stereotypes to their clients, their patients. And that's just like not okay. You know, it's so important to have that understanding where you don't have to explain yourself out of situations like that. Uh, so I conducted, I think, 60 like interviews. And though everyone's experience was obviously, you know, vastly different, there were such key themes that came up, you know, like I wasn't allowed to talk about mental health in my family. Um, one interesting key theme was everybody struggled with a little bit of like self-hate and self-loathing. That was really something I think I felt alone in doing. And then in more recent things, we do this weekly wellness check-in. And last week's topic was called people pleasing as a trauma response. Um, our facilitator, she's awesome. Her name is Dr. Hunred talked about you know the effects of complex PTSD and that complex PTSD is developed through not by one single traumatic event but by omission of 
love and nurturing and care and X, Y, and Z, like omission of things that, that you needed growing up. Um, and so one of the things that develops out of that is fawning, which so there's the response of like, you know, fight, flight, fawn, and freeze. You know, you usually think of the fight or flight response, but there are actually four of those. And the author's name is Pete Walker, and he wrote a book about it. But anyway, she was talking about how fawning is a common response in Asian American communities or like Asian American individuals, because, you know, maybe growing up, you know, love felt conditional, or there wasn't really that clear line of communication between folks, or like your love had to be earned and all that. So the, the fawning type is the people-pleasing type where, you know, you're constantly trying to alleviate the situation, make the other person happy, appease the other person in an effort to, like, secure love when really that's not necessarily how, like, love and support should be. And so in turn, like, people develop, like, like people-pleasing habits. Like, for me, I'm always, like, if someone texts me, like, a one-word response from someone, I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? Like, I'm completely trash. Like, like that's one example of that topic. So my point of all of this, so many people showed up to that session. Like that was such a common theme. And I got so many DMs like asking for recordings of it. And that's happened a number of times with our check-ins, like different topics will resonate with a large group of people. Um, that makes you realize that, wow, like all of us are really going through a lot of very similar emotions. So that's so interesting. I never knew there was the fourth thing of fawning. And now that makes so much sense. I'd love to understand a little bit more about like your background, how you were raised. Did you grow up with a large Asian American community or were you kind of grown up in like a more white community? Yeah, I actually grew up in a super Asian community in Southern California. I think it might have been like either 60 to 80 percent. Like, I think the school was like 70% and like the community itself, like now is like at mm -hmm. 60 something percent. I'm not really sure. I'm butchering the statistics. Ooh. Is it like the 626 area? Uh, yes. I was like, <laughs> do I, how do I say it without saying it? Yes, I'm from the 626 area. Uh, it is hella Asian. Yes. I used to watch a lot of YouTubers and they're always YouTubers? talking about the 62. Yeah, because we're from so the East fun. Coast, like New York specifically. So when I went to school in California, I was like doing my research and all I heard was like 626. Yeah, that's funny because I was like, I know it because it's like my home, but I didn't know that. Because yeah, there's like the 626 Night Market, Wong Fu Productions is like what I grew up like watching and they always reference it. That's so interesting. Um, but yeah, that was a very interesting time because on the one hand, I didn't have the trouble that I hear of, you know, like people making fun of my lunch or, or feeling ostracized because of my race or ethnicity. I didn't feel that growing up in my town and school, but it also like really perpetuated, you know, like our parents would get together and compare us kids all the time. And it, it felt like a pressure cooker. I think it was a very high pressure, competitive high school, very geared towards like college and academics which in turn, you know, added a lot of social pressure, but it was also, I think, relatively conservative too. I always joke about with my friends, I'm like, oh yeah, everyone that came out of the high school, we're all struggling with some <laughs> problems right now that are all very, like, we're all anxious as hell, like. <laughs> I think it was the Fung brothers. They did like a classification of like types of Asians, which is interesting, which I don't know. Sometimes I, I seek problem with that because well, on the one hand, of course, I hope to digest that Asian people and Asia, Asian Americans as a whole, were like not a monolith. Mm -hmm. So um, from that regard, it's important to make distinctions. But then when it breaks into stereotype distinctions, I don't know. But 
I would say the quote unquote ABG, we call them boba gangsters. I don't know oh, if that's interesting. like okay. <laughs> it was like the, the first time I've heard yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it was the ABGs and the boba gangsters. Like they would sit outside boba shops, like vape and like look really cool in their false eyelashes. I don't know what category like I would fall into. I'm sure there's one probably just like really nerdy <laughs> or like weird. That's not a category. Anyway, that's all I have. I don't have much to stick on this. That's interesting because like I think in California, there's a bunch of different stereotypes of Asian American. So you have like the ABGs, you have your like the nerdy gamers, like tech bros. But I think on the East Coast, like it was just like you are lumped in the stereotypically like submissive, docile, um, quiet Asian girl perspective. And that was kind of like the only Asian stereotype that you had. So I guess like going to California, I was like, oh, so many more options. (laughs) And now I think being back on the East Coast, I feel like those are more heightened where um, either you were this submissive, quiet Asian girl who was just like smart and did well on tests, or you were kind of whitewashed and you're not even considered Asian anymore. So I think that's like very interesting, like being back on the East Coast now, after being in like a really diverse community where you didn't have to explain yourself all the time I see myself from other people's perspective of like oh when I walk into a room like they're gonna see me this way because like I have a baby face and I wear glasses and sometimes I'm tired I'm quiet and I don't want to speak right but then I'm just like oh am I fulfilling their biases and I'm like I have to go against that and then I have to like talk now but then I feel like if I'm too out there then you fulfill like this other stuff I'm like oh like you can't just be yourself yeah Yeah, I definitely can relate to that. And I think when you're the only Asian face in the room, people will have their expectations set upon you. Or even if you're not the only Asian face, like people will, you know, gravitate towards their assumptions and and categorizations of who you are. And it's like not fair because like, why can't we just be, you know, like I think we talk a lot about representation. But through that, there's sort of, you know, like the token Asian character who has a purple streak in her hair and is like, yeah, yeah, or like the tokenism is real, like in real life as well. And even now, like those things have gotten better with like recent movies and casting and, and all that. There's still like the thought of like, uh, for example, I think I was watching The Good Place. Great show. Love it. But like Manny Jacinto's character, I don't know if you've watched it. Yeah, he's like the monk. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, oh, I don't want to spoil it. But his characteristics are like, he's like not smart at all. Like he's a, a dance boy from Florida. And it's interesting because I even have those ingrained stereotypes in my head where I was like, yeah, like, I guess they're doing a left field of what Asian men have characteristically been, you know, like portrayed in, in the media, like effeminate, nerdy, quiet, like ridiculed characters. I think people have placed Asian men in the past, but he's like a left turn opposite of that. But at the same time, I was like, oh, are they like overcorrecting in some, I don't know. I, I was like really analyzing like his specific role in The Good Place. And I personally like, wasn't just letting him be as a character. I was assigning all these different layers of things in my own head. And I was I had to stop myself and go like, oh crap, I'm doing the thing that people, you know, do to me that I don't like, you know, like stuff like that. Most of it, I don't think comes from like malicious, like intent. My work, sometimes I'll talk to older white men and, you know, they're usually nice people, but then they'll go like, oh, I dated a woman who was Asian once or like stuff like that. And I'm like, okay like all these scenarios pass through my head in like five seconds I'm like I could be really angry and be like actually that's really like weird and unfair to like say it's like it's sort of weird to bring up your ex-Asian girlfriend from like 
1980 like that's very strange or two I'm like oh like, okay like we're trying here like establishing someone of connection so we could talk and three I'm just like what the heck like I don't know what's going on <laughs> but again like I don't think those interactions are I think they're like well-intentioned to like an extent and I'm like like I don't know how to react to that necessarily but at the same time it doesn't make it not problematic and not ignorant uh, you know but anyway I feel like every time I have someone tell me like, oh, my wife is Chinese or like my girlfriend is from Asia. And that's like the first thing that they bring up to kind of connect with me on. And I'm like, you didn't even ask me if I was Chinese. Like, why are you assuming that? So I think it's really odd. But I also feel like this Oh, okay, like jackpot. Now I feel like we can connect on something that I could just play into that role of like, yeah, like same. Okay, cool. But I think it's just like counterproductive because if you try to be like, oh yeah, I relate, then it's like you're buying into their like bait in some way. But then you are Asian. I'm like, yeah, I am. But like, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's like when people are like, can I guess your ethnicity? And I'm like, no, they'll do it anyway. And then they guess it right. And I'm like well, fuck, I guess you're right. But like, I don't like, I don't like that this one experience validated that behavior of yours. You need to correct that behavior. It's not okay. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> I think growing up in New York, even though it's so diverse, there is so much like blatant ignorance. And I would say like stark racism that is so normalized against Asians. Um, so I think there's this one time when I remember it was like fifth, I was 15. And it was right after a track meet. And I wanted a hot dog. So I went to this halal card to get a hot dog. And he was trying to guess my ethnicity. And he was like, Oh, you're Chinese. I am Chinese. But I didn't want to admit that because then that like plays into like his assumption. So I said, Oh, I'm Korean. And he said this thing to me, which I remember to this day. He was like, oh, you all look alike. It doesn't matter. So I was so pissed. I ordered so much food and I just walked away. I didn't pay. I didn't like, I was like, fuck you. I don't want your food. And then I went to the opposite halal car and I got my hot dog and I walked back. But I was like so petty and annoyed and angry and frustrated. But it's like when you're so young, you don't really know how to like deal with those emotions. And you're not really taught that this is not okay. But I just know that I was angry. So I was like, you know, how can I show him a fuck you like attitude? And that was like the only thing that I could think of doing. But yeah, so I think a lot of Asian Americans who are like growing up in this day and age, don't really know how to react to these situations that they're placed in, which is uncomfortable and nuanced, that there are so many things at play here. But it's just like, how do you react to it? Yeah, I mean, it's new, right? Like, these experiences, I mean, to me, are my parents immigrated here. So I'm the, the first generation that was born in, in the U.S. So that inherently, that experience is unique and new. I couldn't go to my parents and be like, this man guessed my ethnicity right and I was upset about it. Like, I can't go to someone because it's so hard to find that, like, relatable experience, uh, which is why, you know, I think for me, it was really important to find Asian American community Um like again, even though I grew up in a place that was predominantly Asian, and yes, I can I can relate to my friends, and we we banter and talk about this all the time. But like after the fact, I was like, oh, like how can I critically analyze like my how I got here, and how do I conduct myself to sort of break any harmful cycles? Like how do I find my place in in this world without falling into these molds that have been placed on and, and around us like all of our lives? So yeah. So, oh, onto that at my high school. Like, I think the quote unquote, like what everybody, you know, high school, we're immature and silly and we're like, 
this group of people with the pretty popular girls. And guess what? Like they were all like, you know, white women. It was, it was the, the group of white girls was like the unfathomably beautiful people that we will never be. Like there was always like a twinge of jealousy there that I had took a long time for me to unlearn. You know, like there's an article. Oh, shoot. I don't know what it is, but it was called like when I realized I wasn't white, you know, like or when I realized I wasn't X, Y and Z. Because because, yeah, I, I think the Asian American experience, like, of course, it dates back. But the one that we're currently experiencing now is so new and different. Like, like it's it's sort of hard to find find individuality and to not reject who you are. I spent a lot of time again, like self-loathing. It was a theme like, you know, like. Not not wanting to be Asian, but like not really like maybe being offended if someone was like, oh, you're you're acting so Asian. Like, you know, like now I, I sort of take a more nuanced approach to that and then try to embrace my culture. But in the past, I think I did reject it because I was like, oh, like I'll, I'll never be as pretty as those white ladies in the magazines or all that. But, you know, those beauty standards and, and those different standards and in boxes that are placed upon me, like I'm trying to work really hard to to break through them and embrace myself like as a human being and not as anyone's like category or something. I definitely feel like the beauty internalized loathing is so prominent in like Asian American women because in media, you're not necessarily seen as beautiful and because you're not represented. But then there's like this flip side of the coin when you're like a little older that Asian women are hypersexualized and they're seen as objectified and classified as this token like exotic asian woman who is like submissive and docile but then will also like fulfill your fantasies and whatever and i feel like that's so it annoys me so much that there is like these two things that people just assume about you and i hate when there's like um the term yellow fever and then everyone's like oh i have yellow i'm like what the fuck like i don't know it's just like it it feels like you're just being colonized (laughs) all over again and I'm just like, I hate this. So every time I feel like I go on a date with like an Asian person, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm fulfilling like someone's stereotype or whatever. I'm like, oh, damn it. But then if you go on a date with like a non-Asian person, then you're like, oh, fuck. Is this like being colonized again? But it's like you can't literally just like choose your choices because there's so much pressure that is placed on you by society. And then there's like a lot of articles or like, media about like the Asian woman and like a white man and those types of relationships. Yeah, I feel that a lot. I think I went to that like exact struggle. Um, Like growing up, I just thought it was like an ugly duckling. Like I thought it was ugly. I also thought that I was not smart because I was very bad at math, like specifically. Like I thought I was an idiot. <laughs> like I, I thought I, I thought I was really not smart and not good looking. Whatever. Like growing up, but then as soon as I hit college, it was like kind of like a, a skirt there. Like because um, <laughs> uh, so all of a sudden I was being hypersexualized, and then all of a sudden I was like, shit. Like I am attractive, cool, but like I'm only a shell of a woman. Like I, people just want me because I'm an Asian woman body, you know, like, that was sort of the fun. And that really, like, fucked with me. Like, I grew up thinking one thing, and then I grew up thinking other thing. And with my my current partner, one of the things I was very insecure about, I was like, yo, are you, are you, like, 
tokenizingly, like, are you only attracted to me because I'm Asian? Because I've experienced that in the past, right? Like, like people find me attracted because I, I checked that one box for him. And, and thankfully, no, like, <laughs> that's, that's not why we're together and all that. But that's such a deep insecurity of mine, like, because of the hypersexualization. And also because like, thinking I, I'm never good of it. It's very, I hate when people use terms like yellow fever or like various fetishized Asian. It's so dehumanizing. Like it's not viewing me as a whole person. It's moving me as, again, a stereotype or, or a category that you want to fulfill your life. Like that's not cool. Yeah. Going back a little bit into mental health, could you talk a little bit more about your experience in college? I remember you mentioned that you ignored it for a bit. It was fine. But then it reached a certain point where it was just like so in your face. Could you talk a bit about like what that struggle was like and how you were able to take that step to get support? Totally. Yes. Wow, that was way too enthusiastic of a yes to talk about my struggles with anxiety. Um, yeah. So throughout college, you know, I've had mental health issues, I suspect, like since I was a kid, you know, always been very anxious, um, struggle with eating, like disordered eating and all that. But it really didn't fester into something that was really disruptive and hard to live through until college. So like in my first couple of years of college, it was just like, I think things are getting worse and worse. So uh, a couple of like pretty traumatic things had happened, like a lot of stuff was going on with family, um, with, with my friends and all that. And then uh, myself, you know, I think I didn't realize that I needed to get help. I was just sort of living through like, so this is my pattern. I would come home from classes and then I would have a laughing fit. So like for 45 minutes, I would just uncontrollably laugh. Like everything was hilarious to me. I was super ticklish. Like I was so weird. Like, like if I wore a collar, like everything was ticklish and I was just like, everything was hilarious. And then after that hour, I would uncontrollably cry. Like it was like, and I would cry. And then suddenly like two, like sometimes four hours would pass. And it was like, that happened every day. And I didn't realize that was a problem. Um, And so other things had happened too, where I would also just like, find spaces to cry on camera. I have I have three distinct like pictures of my edge of me looking up and those are my crying spots on camera. This is so sad. <laughs> I'm good now. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> um yeah, so I had these patterns, but I never realized they were like a problem. I was just like, you know what? Like this is just how I, I live my life. Like whatever, I'm cool. Like I'm doing internships. <laughs> Yay. Um great <laughs> so then I actually went to I went to the gynecologist and I went to go like get my regular checkup and then I, I went to go get like STD checked uh and then she was like oh like why are you getting checked and I sort of joked about like oh ha like forced entry like oh well. like like I, I had a very like humorous over because I didn't know that was a problem <laughs> like it really didn't register in me. like of course I knew what you know sexual assault was and stuff but I was like oh but not me, like, couldn't be me. Like, I, I didn't, I didn't actually go through that. I was a lot of invalidating. And that was the result of my own, like, lack of understanding what that meant. And also, like, I had fret, like, there, there's stigma around that, too, in college campus, for sure. Um, anyway, after that had happened, um, she, like, immediately called the um, campus, like, uh, it's called Relationship and Sexual Violence Prevention Center. And she's like, you need to go... <laughs> You need to go make an appointment now. So she helped me make an appointment. It was really nice. And then so like all of a sudden I went from having like no knowledge of mental health, anything like no knowledge of like my anxiety, like depressive symptoms, like PTSD, none, no knowledge of that until uh, then, then I, she called and then I ended up getting placed in 
three. So I, I saw individual therapy for like, I think it was like four months. And then I saw, I went to a group therapy session and then also a psychiatrist and then a nutritionist. Like they, they had me go to like four things, uh, like weekly. Well, the nutritionist was for a little bit, but I had to go to all of these, these sorts of things. Uh, and I was really well taken care of, but it was like all of a sudden I'm going to three mental health sessions a week. I'm like, what the, what the fuck happened? <laughs> like, who am I? Am I? Uh, and yeah, so it sent me through a shock and it was a really difficult period of my life because I was trying to overcome those panics. And then I got on a little bit of medication and yeah, I just, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about mental health. And then I was like, wow, after coming out of that cycle, I, I sort of like, that was when I had the breaking point. I was like, wow, if I had received maybe consistent mental health care, like when I was like younger, or, or at least had the vocabulary to understand what was going on in my brain, I think a lot of the really like painful things and then poor decisions on my part, like could have been mitigate, mitigated, right? Like I could have managed it better from an earlier age. So yeah. So then that's when I started getting really into like, like I was like a mental health hobbyist. No, I, I don't know. I just, I just did a lot of research and stuff on this and I realized how important it was to me because yeah, like therapy and all that stuff saved my life. It saved a lot of my loved ones lives, you know, like, like it's super, super important and not to, yeah, it shouldn't be minimized, I think, which oftentimes I feel like it is. So it's it's wild, but not being able to talk about stuff and stigma and yeah, like a lack of support could really could really do like a lot of that's the sort of thing like you never know what anyone is is going through. So that's an important thing to know, I think. If I did not go to the psychiatrist or like therapy or anything, I would still quote unquote be labeled as neurotypical or like normal, like just like flagged as an average normal person without anything. But then when you get these labels attached to you and then you're, I'm like, fuck, damn it. Because it's like, it's not seen as something, po- you don't go to like a psychiatrist and you're like, woohoo, I, I got this thing. It's always like something not great. So then when we have these labels and it's still like stigmatized and you're like, oh, not only do I have this challenge that I'm dealing with, because like getting that label actually helps because you're like, okay, now now we know how to tackle it and get better. But then the stigma that comes with it kind of undoes like the good that having that label does. And I think that's something that is really challenging because I feel like I always saw myself as like someone who was capable of like doing anything, but then now realize that... (laughs) technically considered a disability and i'm like wait a second internalizing that i'm like what the fuck does that mean yeah i feel that if i may speak to that um yes when my therapist had told me like oh you you probably have like you know ptsd and i was like huh like i'm not i'm not an army vet like i've i've never gone through combat like like i i had a very narrow view of what ptsd was as it turns out ptsd is a lot more common than a lot of people think like it doesn't have to be like a a stereotypically labeled like traumatic event like and because it's so stigmatized like when I thought of PTSD in the past I thought of the Vietnam War veteran who like locks himself in his home and and does x y and z which is like you know I think problematic for me to have that narrow view and like like, I was quite ignorant to that when I was diagnosed I was like whoa like couldn't be me. <laughs> like no but and and because of the stereotype that you were saying and because of people's perception of it it sort of took the power out of it it I think it is good to know conditions that you have ultimately so so that you could further your treatment and learn to better manage and understand it but when your understanding is tainted by a bunch of stereotypes and 
and stigma and stuff. It, it's really shitty and hard. And I had the same thing. Like, I think I was applying to jobs at the time, like straight out of college, applying to jobs. I recently gotten diagnosed and then I was looking at the thing and then it said like list if you have any disabilities so I read it and PTSD is, is labeled as a disability and I was like huh <laughs> but I had I had a little bit of a struggle with that because I you know there's also stigma around disability and yeah I liked what you're saying about like using the terms of neurodiversity like I think that that's super important to embrace uh, but yeah when I saw that on the job board I was I like froze I like I didn't know what to do so I like for a good like 10 minutes I was like looking up like how often do I have to experience these these episodes for me to list that as I ended up like just like not disclosing anything so I was like I don't know um, but as it turns out my PTSD at the time um, with my first job really did affect my work. Like, you know, a lot of the work was like a little bit investigative and without getting into it, some of the things like trigger or, or we would watch, for example, the, the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court case, right? Like that was playing on the TV and I was constantly getting like re-triggered by that. And so I would have, you know, episodes during work. So I'd go to the bathroom and come back. Like, you know, like that made me realize like, oh, this really does like have a, an effect on my life on a day-to-day basis. Um, but then being able to address that and acknowledge that has pushed me to get the help that I need. And so I'm in a much better place now. I definitely think it's super important that like we're talking about this in more of like a conversational manner to destigmatize everything and also not be seen for just your labels that we are just regular people doing regular people things. Like I feel like sometimes you become just these labels of like, Oh, Asian American or a woman or like XYZ. And then that takes the power away from you to be like an individual with all of these multifaceted ways and perspectives and like that you could be related to like um, relatable to another person without any of those conditions. And sometimes people feel sad, but that might be different from like depression. And like we can connect on like this feeling. And I think when people hear certain things, they get scared and they don't know how to react. So I think like, the biggest struggle is trying to tell other people like, oh, got this thing. <laughs> but it's, it's like, it's fine. But it's also like, not fine, but it's like, chill. <laughs> so with the Asian Mental Health Project, the primary services that we offer or would like to offer are, you know, one community events. Now they're digital slash virtual events. Uh, and those are like educational opportunities where, you know, we we bring in panelists from different groups and, and, and talk about, you know, pertinent topics. And for the panels, for these larger scale events, I, I like to analyze the systemic and historical roles and like sociological concepts surrounding mental health. Um, so for example, today we have a panel on it's called the queer Asian American experience and chosen family. And so, you know, we're bringing in a couple of, you know, practicing clinicians as well as, you know, artists and, and organizers and other folks um, to, to speak about that experience. And then we've also had a panel on like race, health and COVID-19. That was our very first one. And that sort of like was the, the catalyst for a lot of the growth that we had. Um, and so we sort of wanted to talk about how this pandemic sort of like, blew away the smoke and mirrors of, you know, racism in America, right? And how that affected different communities in a different way. Like, for example, um, you know, spikes in um, anti-Asian violence and all that, that came a lot. But also, you know, like how Black and Brown folks are disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and how there's a lot of medical mistrust um, because of Tuskegee 
experiment like eras where people were abused using the medical system. So of course there's, you know, medical mistrust. So we sort of use these sessions as a way to dissect larger scale concepts and topics that maybe are not directly related to mental health, but most certainly affect mental health and most certainly affect people are. So yeah, uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the project is doing these like learning events. I learn a lot and it's, it's good to good to see people participate and also fully learn from them. Uh, the other branch is like multimedia, like social media content, like making things really digestible and shareable um, to, you know, post in and do stuff online. I feel like 2020 is the age of the Instagram infographic <laughs> with that and our blog posts and videos and stuff. You know, we also want to make mental health care more approach, mental health a more approachable topic, uh, and, like make it shareable for people's feeds so that we can, as we were talking about, like normalize it in conversation. It doesn't have to be like this, scary clinical thing with all these academic barriers it could just be something that you read about and like you know like hopefully like seek help from it and stuff like that or, or realize you're not alone at the very least um and then the last thing is we do weekly wellness check-ins so most every week since march when covid went down um i, I wanted to do this in person but it was sort of not a blessing in disguise but like because we couldn't do things in person, I had to do it virtual. And because it was virtual, lots of folks from all around the world can come join in. So every Wednesday, or most Wednesdays, again, like we try to have uh, someone who's a healthcare or mental health care practitioner come in and facilitate on a topic of their choice. Um, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but the, the other part is that like the first half of the session is like an unpacking space. So anyone who's in there can like talk about how they're feeling and, and it's a space to uh, unpack and, and connect with people who like look like you or, or people who have shared experiences. So yeah, those are three like primary service things in terms of large scale projects. We are hoping to file for 501c3, like nonprofit status. And the reason for that is I want to establish a fund, like a grant system or, or something that, you know, uh, one of the barriers to mental health care, the biggest one I think is financial barriers. Like if you go online and look, it's expensive and it's scary and it's daunting. Like the average session, I think this like goes for like $130, $150. Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> so we're hoping to perhaps raise money, lessen that load for some folk and be able to distribute funds. But that requires 501c3 says because... I can't just like Venmo people. <laughs> I can't be like donate to my personal Venmo and then I'll Venmo out. I promise. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So uh, we are trying to do that. But yeah, it's it's been really exciting uh, working on this stuff. You're making this so more accessible to like a lot of people, especially I think the financial barrier is so high because I think even in me, like I have a full-time job. I have benefits. I have health insurance. And when I was making my appointment, I was like, that's going to cost me $300 out of pocket. I was like, do I want to do this? I contemplated. I was like, am I struggling that much? And then I like try to rationalize it. But then like it was too late to cancel anyway. And I'm like, okay, what? I would just show up. But then I realized that that was so important for me to have that session that a lot of other people who don't have the financial means might otherwise not have gone and got the, the help that they actually need. And is there any way that we can try to spread awareness about the funds that you're accumulating or where can we seek to help out and donate? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. We do have our GoFundMe up. If you go to our Instagram at Asian Mental Health Project, we have our link tree in the bio and that lists out like our website, our Facebook, our, you know, any, anywhere you can find us, including our GoFundMe. Uh, but I will say, you know, funds are not being distributed yet. Um, of course, it's helpful to donate. That helps us run our weekly programs and it helps us run our virtual panels. It basically pays for Zoom and other add-ons and stuff like that. But in terms of that actual like grant, you know, we're not raising money for that until next year. So I don't want 
I just want to make that very clear. It, it goes to fund the, the digital services that we're using right now. If you are struggling right now with mental health, even though it's really hard to wrap your head around it, you are not alone and it is worth it to seek the help that you need, whether it's in a peer, like a friend you could talk to, um, or an online hotline or any going the, the full like mile in going to seek uh, professional mental health care. I, I promise you it's worth it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Two Addies and a Coffee, Please. 